We didn't know the data aspect that well when we got started. And to be frank, if we knew all the complexity of this field, we would probably not have started back then in 2017. But the idea was that I was doing another SaaS product where Benedict was my engineer, by the way, in that particular small product. There was no tool that could do what I wanted, which is behavior-based email and in-app messages. So when there was time to start the next product, I was like, let's tackle this. There is not enough tools not there. And we did. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Hey folks, today I have Jen Partman. She's the founder of UserList. Welcome to the show, Jen. Hey Phil, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Let's start with what problem does your product solve? Usualist is an email marketing platform for SaaS companies, and it solves a problem of not being enough dedicated tools for SaaS to run their email stuff. So having an email service provider is obviously a necessity for every SaaS business, but the tools out there are just way too generalist that don't really cater to SaaS data very well. So we're solving that specific problem. And how did you learn about that problem? We didn't know the data aspect that well when we got started. And to be frank, if we knew all the complexity of this field, we would probably not have started back then in 2017. But the idea was that I was doing another SaaS product where Benedict was my engineer, by the way, in that particular small product. There was no tool that could do what I wanted, which is behavior-based email and in-app messages. So when there was time to start the next product, I was like, let's tackle this. There is not enough tools not there. And we did. Nice. So basically, you found your co-founder on the other product that you're trying to build. What happened to that product? Was it successful or you guys shut down and moved to this one? Completely unsuccessful. I sold it for like 5000 bucks or 10000 bucks. I don't remember. So it became a satellite tool over another SaaS. And that was it. It lasted less than a year. I learned a ton. <laughs> That's exactly what the purpose was. <laughs> How many products did you build until you got to this one that, that's actually successful? There were info products. So before that, I had four books. Then one little SaaS we're talking about, which was like a small productivity tool, didn't go anywhere. And then this real one that got into the long run. And that is now over a hill of being like alive and kicking. It's, it's useless. So yeah, whatever you count, probably six so what are the lessons that you learned on the early stage, like the info products and the smaller SaaS that you were able to apply when you start to build this one product that you have now? Use your list. So I was a UI UX consultant writing books about design. That's what I was doing there. And I learned the basics of marketing, how to run an email list, how to launch products to your email list, how to build like evergreen funnels, all these kind of things. So the basics of marketing were learned in these times. And then with SaaS, I learned that it's not as easy as info products. Like SaaS selling software is like 5x harder than info products because it's not an impulse buy. You really need to provide value, ongoing value to your customers. 
So that was the big learning switching from info products to SaaS. So it's fair to say that you were fairly successful with your info products and you thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I just apply the same things. I'm going to do the SaaS. And then you realize, oh, that's not the same. It's a different ballgame. Is that, is that how it yes, went? Yes, exactly. And I also had a pretty established audience as a designer. So I thought, oh, well, that's going to translate into some SaaS sales as well, because I've been successfully selling info products to these people. But no, like not at all. And yeah, selling SaaS is a different ballgame. That's a great insight. So how big was your audience at the time? I had an email list of like seven, 8,000 people, mostly designers, but also product people. So there was like fairly good overlap between those folks and who could potentially make benefit of the first product or the second product. But no, like it doesn't work like instant sales at all. <laughs> That's a great insight. So I believe it's a good idea to don't start with SaaS just because of the complexities of building a SaaS business. So what's your opinion on that? Like, so do you believe people should start with something easier or like, what did you learn? Do you think that was the perfect route for you? I don't think anyone should start a SaaS product unless you have like five to 10 years of life you want to spend on like slow, steady grind on this because it's a huge project. There's a ton of infrastructure beyond the product itself. You also have to run support, sales, marketing, all other things. Not even remotely pleasant if you're like an engineer and like to build products. You won't be building products like half of the time. You'll be doing all these other things. It really helps to have a co-founder to help, but it's not a silver bullet. It's still a lot of hard work. So taking SaaS off the ground, not a small kind of project. Definitely do make a course, write a book, try selling those first, do that. And that's really a much easier and faster way to make money. Yeah, I think most successful products are built by industry experts. Those are the people that they have a knowledge, understand the industry. They really know what they're doing and they still struggle because it's a different challenge building a SaaS product. Definitely so, yes. And how did you guys fund this product? The first few years we've been consulting on the side. So we just chimed in with some cash, fund the early costs. And then in 2020, we joined an accelerator named Tiny Seed. So we had a great time there. And then one year later, we raised another round of angel investments. So it's not as big as VC funding, but we raised like some cash to grow our business from 22 amazing angel investors. That was our way to go. And that's where we're at. We're spending that right now and on the road to being profitable sometime soon. That's awesome. So why you made the decision of joining Accelerator and why you decided to go with Tiny Seed? It was like written on the wall because we actually met with Benedict at within MicroConf community. That's where we've been going for like 10 years before that. And MicroConf is kind of where Tiny Seed was born. It's done by the same person, Rob Walling and their team. So it was not like a no-brainer. We just watched how our friends were joining Tiny Seed and having fun there. So we were like, why? We should apply. That sounds great. Like we're going to join the community and also raise money to go full-time. So Tiny Seed did allow us to go full-time and quit consulting and also spend some extra cash in marketing at that stage. 
That's awesome. But basically, you are part of the community. Your friends were already joining Tiny Seed. And one thing yeah. that's very different about the whole approach, they don't want you to be huge, right? They're not trying to get the unicorn. They want to build a sustainable, profitable business. That's their whole idea behind investment, right? Actually, I don't know, Rob, but I know Anar, one of the partners there. They're both great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's not spoken about much is that they have a fantastic community. Like, they really vet the founders who join and then those founders are really helpful so if you want like ask for advice or solve a technical problem or if you need a reference to some sort of contractors or consultants for your SaaS it's a perfect place to ask this is not an advertisement for tiny seed like Really, the community value add is enormous because with UserList, we've been trying to approach other accelerators to do like mentor calls and office hours in the same way Tiny Seed does. So a Tiny Seed office hours call with an expert will attract like 30 people live on a Zoom call. Amazing atmosphere, like everybody asking questions. We enjoy those so much. So we try to do that for others. And we just learned that the other audiences are not even closely as responsive and active, we would get like three people weirdly and not as much engagement at all. The community aspect is undervalued, I think. That's awesome. So you'd say the community is even more valuable than the cash they put in your business. I think both are great. With the money itself, there are different options, let's face it. Like by giving away the same percentage of your business, you can get different results. You can get mentorship and community from the accelerator. You can maybe get like angel relationships if you raise from angels. You maybe get like a bit more money, but give away freedoms if you go VC for the same exact number of shares. So it's your like choose your own adventure kind of thing. And how much did your business grow? In percent wise, after you joined the accelerator versus before, like how much faster it was? I don't think it was faster. It just enabled growth altogether. So in 2020, when we joined Tiny Seed, we were a team of two, rather exhausted because like we couldn't hire for important things. So that allowed us to go full time. That was the biggest win and have some marketing experiments. And then the next angel round actually allowed us to hire more engineers and also like do do some bigger things. Without funding, we'd probably be like dead tired and out of the game. I think that's the alternative. If you want to like rocket ship growth, then angel money or tiny seed money is not really enough. You can't really rocket ship stuff. You need VC kind of in the millions range. Makes sense. It was just enough money for to start growing and to move full time and to move toward building a sustainable business because before it was just a part time as you guys keep have to supplement the income. Yeah. And what are some of those positions that you say that you are missing that you really want to hire for that was stressful that you hire for now that you have this money? You know those graphs when like from A to B there is not a straight line but like a curveball. <laughs> yes. I don't think we had any kind of uh, specific understanding like what we need and how, but we just figured as we went. What we ended up doing, we did hire someone to help me with the marketing first, like marketing assistant slash manager. Podcast production was one of the first. Then we had a really interesting story about delegating support because everybody kept saying, please just do delegate support. But Usulist is a complex product. And also like the amount of support was not as overwhelming to just go and get really burned out. 
So we postponed that until we were hiring for customer success, mm-hmm. but ended up learning that what we need is customer support. And that's how we got Michael on board. And then in the beginning of last year, we finally delegated support and we couldn't be happier. Really, it was a great life improvement. That's great insight. And I think sometimes as, as founders, we tend to hold to things and like, oh, I'm the one that can do this best than anybody else. There is a great book by Dan Martel. You don't have to like Dan Martel's personality. The book is amazing. Like he has great advice on delegating step by step and taking things off your founder plate. What I really love the insight is don't delegate to grow, delegate to free up your own founder time. That is the insight. So until you have your plate clean, you can't have time to grow other things. So start with that. Start with cleaning your own plate first. That makes total sense. I did have Dumartel on the show and he talked about his book. So if you're listening to the show, go back, look for Dumartel. <laughs> it's definitely a great insight to like, you have to have the time, your time free up as the founder. And so how did you guys got your first customers? Like you say that, your audience didn't work. So then what it works to find and to bring the first customers to the broad? I think the audience did work to just, you know, have a seeding of new customers. We did run pre-orders fairly early. So we had like a few, maybe first 10 customers from there. And then we were just slowly launching the MVP, which also took a while to build, slowly rolling out the MVP, getting them use it. And then we launched, so we had like a handful of early customers, pretty reliably using UserList for their SaaS. And God, I'm grateful to them for trusting because like trusting your email communications with an early SaaS, that's something like seriously, very grateful to them. And then we launched on Product Hunt to number one product of the day in 2019, in August. That didn't bring immediate customers, but that helped spread the word. And then we kind of just slowly grew from there. By the way, Selling email marketing tools, don't do that. That's not for the weak of heart. One thing, it's a bloody crowded marketplace. That's one. And second, it's just a very hard thing to make people switch. It's a crucial piece of infrastructure. So there is a very narrow window of time when people are really fed up with their previous tool or really need to have a new one. For example, they might be just launching a new product or revamping their onboarding or maybe another marketing manager is on board. It's just narrow opportunities when they're ready. Other than that, it's not like saw an ad and decided to switch your email marketing tool. No, definitely not. And over time, we've learned to accept that and nurture long-term relationships. And now we're just accepting that the sales cycle is super long and we have to play other games. Like these days, our game is super high quality content, great guides, in-depth stuff about SaaS email marketing. That makes total sense. And I love how you bring so much insight about how complex is the market that you join. And it's the thing about like, it's such a core part of any product, sending the emails. And like I said, that the initial customer that trusts you, because if you send multiple emails, people are going to get mad. There's like so many mistakes that can happen. And I'm sure it happened with early too. So let's step back on the timelines. Looks like it took two years to go to Product Hunt. But how long did it take to get those first initial few customers using the product? Yeah, the Product Hunt day was the day when we went out of beta officially. So it was the same day. The timeline goes fall of 2017. We get together, start interviewing potential customers. Maybe January 2018, we are starting to build, do pre-orders, start to build. 
May 2018, we form the legal entity. The actual legal entity is May 2018. Fall 2018, we onboard the first users out of those pre-orders, more like a count of five or 10 people. We start working with them. And it takes another less than a year to make it more mature and get it ready to go out of beta. And our approach to beta was always very polished, very quality, but not enough features. So it was fine. We didn't really royally screw up anybody's email list or anything like that. But we would launch without like some features that are definitely must have for an email provider. <laughs> so we wouldn't like have this or that. It was really embarrassing. And that became better over time. And when we reached that like critical mass of features that need to be in place, then in August 2019, we did launch to public and went out of beta and went on product hunt. So that was about two years? Yeah, roughly two years. The funniest story, when we got together, we thought like, we're experienced SaaS people. The way we're going to validate it, we're going to get it out. And then the first six months, we're going to get to 5K MRR. Took us like three years to get to 5K MRR, maybe more. I don't know. Maybe it's easier for other people. Like, yeah, there are certainly unicorn founders who stumble across like amazing product market fit and like fairly easy products to build. But no, with email marketing, you don't get to 5K MRR anytime soon. Like it's a really, really slow grind, like customer by customer having new people on board. Yeah, it makes total sense. But I feel like as founders, we all, uh, everything takes twice as much as I think it's going to take. I'm always so optimistic. <laughs> I got to a point where like every time that I think something, oh, this is going to take a year, actually probably two or three. And marketing and selling books, I had known that marketing doesn't bring the results you want it to bring. So if you launch something and nobody buys, that's normal. And like you learn to use your marketing skills to make it so that not zero, but five people, 10 people, 100 people buy your book. You know, it's hard. We SaaS like 5x that. It is a lot worse. So tell me about like a, the first like, oh shit moment that comes to mind from the early days of your SaaS. Like some really bad situations? Yeah, or a good situation, you know, like not to be like, where you realize some big realization or you had some big thing, bad thing that happened. It could go either way. It was surprisingly smooth. I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was like rather smooth curve. Some fun learnings were when we are at crossroads, we would go and do like 25 interviews. So on the verge of 21 and 22, I think, or maybe 2020, we were on the crossroads, what to build next. And I did a bunch of interviews. And I found a pattern of people saying, we want all my SaaS email in one tool, verbatim. More than five or 10 people said that. We were like, oh, wow. So before that, we had been rather stubborn on just offering the customer side of email. So everything that happens after someone, let's say, signs up for the product or starts a trial. So we would focus on that stretch and ignore the marketing emails. And we just heard people saying that over and over in customer interviews or non-customer interviews. And it was like, wow, that's smooth. And when you see these patterns and especially people using the same words for the same thing, it's amazing. You're just like, I'm onto something. And then we build it. We added those marketing emails to the mix in October I forgot what year. You really need to pull up the lifeline. We added marketing email and really helped. It didn't revolutionize the sales mm -hmm. because the sales are still dependent on the life cycle of every company. But it definitely helped make the journey nicer 
and provide like better value for our customers. So right now we have customers and leads within the same list, just nicely segmented. So when you have to tell them some news, you just go to the broadcast and send one single broadcast. And that's really like a life improvement for the founders. So how long you resist that? For how long you kept getting the feedback and you're like, ah, no, I don't think so. I'm going to wait a little bit longer to build this feature. Not now. We didn't resist, like we just interviewed everybody, learned it and then started building. But there were a few colleagues and possibly customers who were like, I'm not joining until I have like marketing email on board. And we were like, no, we're going to be focused, you know, because that's another mantra out there. Like, please stay focused and niche. That's the recipe for success. But it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes you do need to include something in order to be more, more viable purchase. I think the problem with like any advice, it's that there are usually three years when they, when you start read about, you know, like, Hey, products have to be built fast and it's okay if they, they don't work well. That doesn't apply anymore because people expect products to have high quality. Yep. So like people are not going to use a low quality product, but you read so much, just build something. Even if you are not like proud of it. Yeah. You can't be missing feature like where you guys were missing, but you cannot be missing quality anymore. The customer change. And that's the problem with any advice. They're usually three years old. You have to be talking to people doing right now to see what's working right now. Like Also, bundling and unbundling is another wave of those trends. Like, you know, remember Basecamp said, like, our value is that we have everything in one place. Like, we bundled and Intercom bundled. Then there were a bunch of folks who unbundled Intercom and Basecamp, and they were successful. But then again, now people are experiencing product fatigue, and they have like 30 SaaS on their marketing spend list. And they want to bundle again. That's all natural. Like, any, they all deserve the place in the world. It's just... There is no universal advice that will work for you. Yes. At the end of the day, you have to look at it, make your own decisions, call your own shots. Some things might work. Other things won't work. Oh, once you're at that, can I add something? The biggest learning as I transitioned from a consultant to a founder is just learning how limited the resources are and that there's a thousand things you know how to do and you want to do, but you just don't have time and money to. As a consultant, I would serve SaaS products and say, like, why don't they do this? It's on the table. Like, so long hanging fruit. Why don't they do that? But there's just making trade-offs all the time so you can focus on important things it means that you're not doing other things. And when I hear consultants saying like, oh, why don't they do X? I don't take that anymore because I know exactly how hard it is to be a founder. Oh, yeah. I actually have a similar experience. So I run Dev Squad and, and I build SaaS products for many people. Like, So they have their own squads with like four or six developers. And I, I go to meetings all the time to help people prioritize. Like, And I'm always like, why is it so hard for these people to figure out what's the they have to build next? Of course, you cannot build everything. Like, it's obvious what to do, right? <laughs> it's obvious. Now I'm building my own SaaS using the same structure that I give to my customers, the same four developers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many things to do. Like, I don't know what to do next. So it's just so easy to look from the outside and give advice. And you have money in the bank. You have the runway you have to maintain. You have real people who are busy and stressed. Customers asking for features all the time. And those are all reasonable features. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, I like to say, in practice, the theory is different. <laughs> yeah, yep. So what is like a very smart decision that you made in the early days of your business? One decision we made without realizing it. So we started UserList as a product because 
from my previous product, I knew it's better to be an essential tool that's like really close to the money, to sales, to customers, that's hard to replace and things like that. So that part was conscious. What wasn't conscious is that we stumbled across expansion revenue. Expansion revenue is like the goldmine of SaaS is when your customer's businesses grows and the bill grows with them and your revenue grows with them. So it's like that inherent baked in growth that happens even if you don't make new sales, your MR number still goes up. Not always. They can like prune their list or whatever. But the general trend is that as they grow, you grow. It's called expansion revenue. And it's the gold mine that we didn't think about, that, but we stumbled across as we build our product. That's an amazing insight. So you build a product for companies that would be growing. And as they grow, you grow together with them. But you were not planning like that. It's very obvious as I'm saying it, but we were two people not not thinking too much about it when we started. Now, for the next product, I probably would. Another smart thing we did that was undeniably great was switch our pricing model from tiers to metered. So initially we had like these tiers, for example, the first one from zero to 5,000 users, another from 5,000 to 20,000, etc. And it felt like, just adding a user overnight would like double people's bill. And it's not great. And we also knew that it wasn't great. So upgrading people, we had it manual and it always was very delicate dance. And we we're like, oh, but sorry, we have to upgrade you. And when we replaced that with metered automated billing, so they grow by a thousand users, we would increase their bill by $10, something like that. It was an instant quality of life improvement, both for us and for them, because it was much more fair, much more transparent. And as they grew gradually, their build grew with them. That's another great insight. And pricing is another thing that's so complex. You know, like, so how many prices did you try to figure out, like, your ideal pricing to grow your product? I don't think we nailed the ideal pricing yet. We had a few changes. The first one was, oh, we're just going to do a product that starts with $29 per month. That's not a lot of money. Don't do that. Then we switched to 49 and then we switched to 99 to start with. And then we introduced those uh, metered pricing instead of tiers. And then last year, we had another raise with the baseline pricing that now starts at 149. And really, you feels like we're trying to like rip off the, the innocent startups there. But no, the reason for that is because in order to get value from email marketing automation in SaaS, not only do you need to pay the price of the tool, but you also need to have resources in-house, marketing in-house or just your own time to commit. And having a slightly higher price point just helps to identify people who are ready to commit more. And they also perceive this purchase as a more serious investment in their marketing. And therefore, we have much better relationships and much better fit with those people who are ready to implement because the implementation is not a walk in the park. Yeah, I think I see founders make that mistake at the time of charging too little, especially when you're building a tool that's very specialized. And I believe the right buyer understand that when you're buying a specialized tool, the company building have to charge more because it's a specialized means you're going to have less customers. But with less customers, you have to still provide a great customer service. You have to still provide amazing product. And you have to always be thinking how many customers I'm going to need to be profitable so I can keep running this business. And 
really 149 your minimal price. It's nothing for a business that's going to be able to do so much of your product. But I believe in the early days, founders, they're looking, they're comparing their product with the product that does everything. That's a lot cheaper with the bigger company that have a lot of VC money. They don't realize that they're playing a different game of like, this is a specialized tool, specialized things cost more. And so, but that's amazing uh, what you got with pricing. Also keep in mind that you'll be probably doing like discounts maybe. And if you have a $29 product, what is that you're discounting to? <laughs> We're not using discounts a lot, but we have like a startup program, for example, when we give a 50% off during the first year they use UserList. And with $149, it brings their bill down to $75, which is not much. But if we had less pricing, that would be like really not very viable for us to give that discount, for example, mm -hmm. as a specific case study. How about like a blunder, a bad decision that you made they only realize later? Really, really bad experiment was trying to offer a $9 plan. The idea was to do almost like freemium, so a very, very cheap plan, like a tripwire plan that would get early SaaS on board. When we just learned that people who pay $9 don't take the thing seriously at all. They just fail to activate. That's what happened to the most of $9 signups. And then there was a little handful of those who did activate, And they had so much problem converting to a really priced plan, like to a full price plan. It was not a successful thing. We had it for three months and then we shut it down. It was like four years ago, probably. That's another great example. Like usually if people are not willing to invest money, they might not be in a stage that they're ready for your tool or for your product. You're getting the wrong customer altogether. I have done this and mistaken people. I have seen people make the same mistake. Oh. So how is the company look like today? Anything that you can share about like team members or companies using and how does the future look like? What's your vision for the future? We are a team of six at the moment approaching profitability. I can't make any like big time plans, but when we started, we had like a roadmap of what we want to achieve by like fifth year of growth and 10th year. And we just celebrated five years a few weeks ago. And for the fifth year, we had a goal of making income for the two founders, so paying ourselves decently, and so that the daily routines of the company are run by team members, not by ourselves. And that is true. So I guess we did meet our five-year goal. And the 10-year goal was to be an industry leader, thought leader, like do conferences, education programs like really be out there and an authority in the field. So I guess that's exactly what we'd love to have. And the road there is definitely not a straight line, but we'll make it. I'm not sure if there's a straight line in SaaS. <laughs> so if you could go back in time and meet yourself the day you start this business, what would you tell yourself? I wouldn't tell myself anything because if I did, uh, we wouldn't dare to start. <laughs> Be quiet. <laughs> yeah. Is there a book they recommend for any SaaS founders? There is a bunch. What do you want? Like, Buy Back Your Time is great in terms of delegation. Lost and Founder by Rand Fishkin, for some reason, springs to mind first is great. I really love the book about uh, risks. It's called Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. It's not necessarily about startups, but it's great. And from another angle, 4,000 weeks, I just read recently and it impressed me a lot. It's about investing your 
life into the right things. And because all you have is 4,000 weeks and you're probably done with 2,000 already, really helps you, you know, build a calm business, think about a business in a calm way. And that's what we're doing here. Like from the very start, we were team first. That means we care about the team's well-being probably more than taking support queries on weekends. So like if somebody is hurting our team member, we're not going to say the customer is right. We're probably going to find a way to maybe say no to the customer or do other things. Of course, uh, politely and gently, but we do care for our team a lot. The customer is always right. It's probably the easiest way to lose all your team members. I don't know. I haven't been there, but yeah, there are ways. Yeah. So of all the books that you mentioned, there's only one that I didn't read. I love all of them. Lost and Founder. Actually, Rand was the first episode zero one for the show. So if you listen to, go listen to him. And Ben Mertel was here too. What was the Risk book again? Because that one I haven't read yet. I'm going to go read it. The other three you mentioned, I love the 4,000 weeks too. Just read. I'm glad. It's calmly inspiring. So there are two concepts. One is the anti-fragility. It's basically, there is no English word for it, but... There is fragile, something that gets ruined when you smack it or hit it. Then there is robust, which means it's sturdy. But then there is the other end of spectrum, something that improves if you use it or hit it. And great example is software. The more you use it, the better it gets because you have a chance to like iron out the kinks and do other things. So I really love that concept. And he talks about the barbell strategy of handling risks. And that is you can only achieve results in life if you make bolder bets. So, but your base needs to be covered. Um, and the barbell strategy goes on one hand side of the barbell is your base, like your living expenses, your family, your like plan B for what if it fails. And then you can make bold bets on the others. You can launch experimental products and do other things. And basically my journey in the last 15 years has been making experiments with products and, and other things while, you know, having the base protected with consulting and things like that. That's amazing. And I think that's how most definitely want to read that book. And I think that's how most entrepreneurs think. Not everybody puts everything in the line. You know, we want to cover our base and you shouldn't. You shouldn't. If you want something too hard, if you really focus on something like it's your last opportunity to get something, it's too much pressure. You're not going to get it. Like the more you want something, like the more you strive and desire, the less it's, you're likely to get it. What you need is a calm intention to be successful. So the example is when you want to buy newspaper, do you really strive like and yearn to buy a newspaper? Just, you know, you have to go out your building and buy a newspaper, like calm intent. So you need calm intent about things you want to do, not like exotic passion of the last thing in life. That makes total sense. And that's probably why the most successful companies are built by second and third time founders. Because they know what they're doing and they're just calmly doing what they're doing. Yeah. They know what they're doing. They're just calmly doing what they're doing. Jen, this has been an amazing show. So many insights here. Thank you very much for coming. And if people want to learn more about you, follow you, what's the best way for them to do it? Twitter, UI Breakfast, also LinkedIn, UI Breakfast. I'm not there much, but I should. And we have an amazing blog at UserList for anything SaaS-related at userlist.com. And my personal website with all the podcast shows I run is uibreakfast.com. It's awesome. Again, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, Phil, for having me. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. 
To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.